Today's Your Stories is brought to you by Poetry Foundation. Party with us as we launch the Poetry Now podcast second season with WFMT producers. That's 7 p.m. on June 23rd at the Poetry Foundation, 61 West Superior Street in Chicago, Illinois. Thanks, Poetry Foundation. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, Comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hey everyone, I'm Eric Garneau, and this is part one of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast featuring the theme Practice, an episode recorded and put together by the lovely folks at the Chicago Design Museum. Uh, Just like Ben Stiller, we spent a night at the museum during Chicago Design Week, and we heard from a number of talented, wonderful people curated by museum's executive director, Tanner Woodford. Uh, This episode features stories from Nick Adam, Joseph Michael Essex, Pega Amadi, and Kelsey Postlewaite, plus music from myself, Dwight Hassler, and special guests. Uh, we just got off a wild run of Your Story shows. That was seven live events in the last six weeks. So huge thanks to everyone who came out and supported those shows in any way. Uh, we've got about a month before the next one now, so my plugs in this episode are going to be a little on the light side. Uh, lucky you. Uh, but before we get to the show, I do want to thank, again, our sponsors for the episode, Poetry Foundation, uh, as well as our sponsorship hookup, the Chicago Podcast Co-op. Uh, the co-op does a lot of amazing things for Chicago shows. Uh, if you're a podcaster or business owner and would like more information on how you and the co-op can have a wonderful relationship together, go to chicagopodcastcoop.com for more info. I'd also like to thank our wonderful listeners and fans, especially the folks who support us on Patreon. Uh, The co-op is great, and Patreon also goes a long way toward helping us do more cool stuff. So if you like what you hear, direct your browser over to patreon.com slash nerdalogs and check it out. There are some rad rewards in store for y'all if you donate. Uh, So thank you all for listening, and please enjoy the show! The theme tonight, as chosen by Tanner, is practice, which is also the theme of this current uh, exhibit, Unfolded, or it connects to Unfolded at any rate. So we are going to play some songs that uh, we had to work really hard at once upon a time. Isn't that original? <laughs> practice. So this is you. Do you want to you explain this one? Uh, I, this, it's got a very simple drum beat, and that's how I learned how to play drums. <laughs> Which is going to translate now to these shakers yeah, in Dwight's right. hand here. So uh, I feel like you guys will know this one. One, two, three, four. So long ago I don't remember they say I lost my only friend well, They said she died easy of a broken heart disease And I listened through the cemetery tree I seen the sun coming up at the funeral at dawn The lawn broken arm of human love such a way she always had a pretty face So I wondered why 
quite get here on time so we're going to switch to one of the songs that when I first started learning guitar it took me months and months to learn how to play a chord with more than three strings and look at me now guys I can do all six sometimes um so you'll you'll gather from my two songs that I listened to a lot of soft rock radio when I was in high school learning guitar I was super cool um but I really really do love this song this is the first guy that made me want to do music um this is Elton John one two three four is pretty. 
nobody, though I've never been. Well, Daniel says it's the best place he's ever seen. Oh, and he should know he's been there enough. Oh, I miss Daniel. Tanner Woodford curated the list tonight. He does not want to tell a story himself, <laughs> which is very sad, uh, but that's okay. Tanner's told some great stories on the podcast before you can hear. Very First true. up, I have to look at my phone to get everyone's title correctly. I'm very sorry about this. We have an, uh, we have someone who works here. Hey. <laughs> you read every single damn lyric of that song. Give me a break. We have someone who works here at the Chicago Design Museum. He is the chair of great ideas at the Design Museum. So if you think this was not a great idea, I think it's on this guy. This is Nick Adam. Woo! Michael Jordan and Walter Payton come to mind when thinking about practice, and it's on and off the field, not solely game day. It involves launch energy, so I'd like us to start our first five minutes off with a little bit of uh, some energetic but light arm exercises. Um, so with this being Design Week and us kind of podcasting from the Chicago Design Museum, um, I'm just kind of curious how many people here identify as uh, designers? Excellent. So, uh, I don't know. I'd say that's like 70, 60, 65%, 65%. And uh, keep your hands up um, of you who identify as a Chicago designer. Same, uh, um, maybe, oh, two people dropped out. Two people dropped out. Okay. And of everyone that has their hands up, um, who tonight has concealed or uh, uh, concealed a handgun? Um, no one. Great. Great. So no handguns are in the building. Um, as a lifelong resident of Chicago, I have felt the wrath of this issue. I, too, am a Chicago uh, designer, graphic designer, I like to say. Uh, and I practice um, something that I like to call maybe radical honesty. And what is radical honesty? Um, it's a motherfucker. And that's not my definition of it. Um, I borrowed the definition from a person named Kristen Luque. Uh, Kristen is a fun, brilliant, uh, Princeton-educated writer that I worked with at a place called Firebelly Design. Um, so today, I'm going to be radically honest towards how to practice radical honesty as a form of practice. Um, sometimes, uh, 
I don't know where to start. And that's not to say that I don't know how to begin. It's just that everything around has so much surrounding context that um, that there's just an infinite amount of plausible beginnings to every single moment. And in my opinion, very few of them are wrong. Radical honesty as my graphic design process means creating moments that allow for a context to present itself and then translating that evidence into form. Um, proof verified equaling proof in some ways or um, um, content completely aligning uh, just as uh, content and, and form aligning as one. Um, this is a management of expectations and it can be likened to the, uh, to the predicting of futures by telling what's plausibly about to happen. Uh, I can excite, engage uh, excitement and then uh, in response build this exciting thing, all the while understanding fears and dancing around people's fears. Um, this dialogue makes the work happen fast, fairly accurate to what's being described, and clients tend to feel uh, engaged, heard, and by doing so, uh, I have minimal revisions. Um, the work itself, uh, it avoids compromise, it's beautiful, um, audiences seem to respond to it, awards are won, and uh, pats are like found on backs. <laughs> Every year each project seems to improve. And while I'm incredibly proud of the work that I and the teams I'm on have made, um, I recently stumbled into uh, something that I can only describe as unexpected, and that is to say that expectations deny discoveries. This is also to say that practice doesn't make perfect. Practice can make perfect, however, perfect is in a constant state of flux. For the practitioner, perfect is constantly changing. Our reality is one of exponential depth. The longer we investigate, the further we see. What was once perfect was aimed for and was achieved, and then in a post-facto manner was re-rationalized, releasing new narratives, new thoughts, new realities. In my 20s, I had a series of friends pass away, and some of them were in uh, innocent, violent manners. And this experience uh, forced me to define my dreams. I'm not sure what middle, age, what middle age means for my generation, however, I'm half of 70 years old. And last year, I took some time to uh, be radically honest to myself, and what I found is that I've achieved most of my dreams that I set out early on. Uh, the one left being uh, to never retire. It seems that without some disruption, my path was pointed towards repeating past successes or having variations on past successes, so I decided to define the dream further, to be constantly increasing my ability to articulate ideas formally, theoretically, and verbally. I resigned from my director position that I held for five years, um, gave a four-month notice to ensure everything was comfortable, and then I began seeking freelance engagements with teams that, were, that uh, excited me, many of which I landed. I began uh, getting tapped for work, some of which I said yes to, and this has allowed me to work in new ways, to practice in a manner informed by many different designers from many different backgrounds. I believe for me to go further than I currently have an understanding of, I must widen my understanding or my scope of practice. On September 8th, I'm going to begin to disrupt my understanding of form, practice, and possibilities as a candidate for an MFA from the Rhode Island School of Design. My next two years of practice will be an exploration around the ideas of innovation, futures, adjacent possibles towards societal and cultural impact through visual language. The only things I could be more excited about are the following. Uh, Trump being completely crippled from all forms of political office globally forever. <laughs> Affordable mass desalination of water, and this is something we all must like start really working towards, as well as um, uh, us doing something about these guns. Thank you. That's a look at RISD, man. That's, that is incredible. Uh, yeah, what, what is perfect? You know, a wise man once said, the enemy of 
perfect is good. Uh, do you guys know who said that? That was Dr. Doom in The Secret Wars, so, <laughs> so we all know. Coming up next to the stage, the only veteran of your stories, actually. So this gentleman did our show uh, a year ago and told a wonderful story, and I'm very happy he's back tonight. And once again, I'm going to the phone for the official introduction, which is an AIGA fellow and founder of the Essex 2 consulting firm, Joseph Michael Essex. I'm not used to doing this kind of thing. Mostly it's because I'm talking about the work I do, not talking about my story. Uh, usually this takes several drinks, um, <laughs> a very big meal, and just laying around on a couch afterwards before I actually get into this kind of conversation, <laughs> as other people know. <laughs> In a way, my story is a little bit about design history. Um, I graduated from college in 1970. Think about it. Um, at the time, for those designers in the group, uh, Phil Miggs, who wrote the book History of Design, he was in the class ahead of me. <laughs> so there was, there was no history of design before that. <laughs> um, in 1970, I was fortunate enough to get an invitation, meaning somebody paid for me, to go to the International Design Conference in Aspen, Colorado. This conference had been in existence since 1951. It was designed and prepared by a guy named Walter Pepke. Walter Pepke was the president and chief executive officer and principal owner of the Container Corporation of America, one of the principal design organizations that actually used design in every aspect of the things they did. Walter's idea was to have a conference where design people would be there, but they were not the focus, even though it had it in the title. The focus were the business people, the educators, the mathematicians, the scientists that were also invited to this experience. And the idea was that by bringing these different groups together, these different cultures together, there was an opportunity to have them be introduced to design as process, design as a practice, legitimate practice, um, not necessarily a science, but something worthy of consideration and to bring these people together. Now, he had all kinds of ideas, particularly with the speakers, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But he had an idea for lunch. There was a truck pulled up to this beautiful tent outside in Aspen, Colorado, in the Aspen Valley, orange tent. Tent filled about 2,000 people um, in the middle of the day for lunch, after the opening ceremonies and so forth for this. Open back truck. And inside the truck were boxes, lunch boxes, boxes of uh, packaged goods. But the difference here was that everything in that lunchbox was one thing. One box had bread, one box had meat and cheese, another box had condiments, another had wine, another had utensils. So you had to find five other people who got the different box than you. And you sat down on this beautiful grass under these great aspen trees and had lunch with people you'd never met before. Otherwise, you were eating less than the lunch you already paid for. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting about the conference was that when he brought together, all of the speakers were just as diverse as those in the audience that come for this, this experience. They were quite, in a sense, adventuresome in their own careers and their own experiences. I'll talk a little bit about some of them later on. But one of the things that was important about this was that it was the precursor, the design conference in Aspen, for the AIGA conferences that some of the designers have gone to. And it was a significant foundation for the TED conferences. Because the guy who invented it, Richard Saul Werman, Ricky, um, was on the board of directors of the International Design Conference in Aspirin. So he took that and turned it into TED. And then when he sold it, he made a lot. <laughs> His home in, in uh, Rhode Island is incredible. Um, I went to this conference for 13 years, the first 13 years of my career, usually because somebody else paid for it, the place I was working for. And the experience there changed my understanding of my own life, plus my life in design. The first conference I went to was, uh, I went a day early. I didn't know what it was. I'd never been to Colorado. I'd never been to Aspen. So I went a day early. And when I got there, I started walking around, looking around what was going on. There was a tent that was already assembled. It was all, it was a giant thing. Three quarters of it are in the ground. Beautiful seats and so forth. 
And, um, but outside of it, where's crew? A bunch of locals. It's hot, it's warm, the sun is out, and these locals were shirtless and they're erecting this sort of structure. There was an old man there, big brown glasses, uh, white snow hair, and he walked with a little kind of stutter step. And they were looking for um, guys to help. So I was walking around, he said, you want to help erect this thing, we'll give you lunch. I got nothing else to do, so I started helping. I started erecting the structure, bolts that are drilled, wood that's already been drilled, bolts that had already been made, and we're sort of assembling this kind of erector set. Well, it turned out to be a geodesic dome, and the old guy was Buckminster Fuller. (laughs) You have to imagine, realistically and ethically, morally, however you want to evaluate that, Buckminster Fuller is probably the quintessential Renaissance man since da Vinci. Um, A poet, a scholar, uh, an inventor, a physicist, um, somebody who is a teacher, somebody who in a sense explores every aspect of himself over on a regular basis and in a sense re-examines every situation from the beginning, holds nothing as, as a fact, challenges everything as his personality. And at the same time, he does it with the most gentle, the most considerate, the most um, opening, opening personality you can possibly imagine. So this was an interesting day. Electing, erecting this thing, and he was directing people as though he were a, a conductor with sort of a dented baton, because everything was sort of from his elbows out, gesturing in this manner. We did this thing, had a great day. When he came to make his presentation, the night of all of this, uh, the night um, opening ceremony, the second evening of the, the ceremony, he was the principal speaker. He talked for two and a half hours without stopping. And he talked in a continuous manner that you would not believe, because he addressed a great many subjects and a great many ideas that um, dealing with physics to, to, um, to futures. He talked about the fact that if you can imagine that the, um, the electronic uh, mechanisms for, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, the, the mechanisms to for capturing falling water and turning falling water into power was a fundamental consideration in this country as well as throughout the world. Well, if you think about it this way, if you were able to, to, in a sense, recognize that half the time that the water is falling, it's being used, turned into electricity. But the other half, it's not, because you're asleep. But the same thing is happening on the other side of the world, but in a different time frame. So if you could create a cable that would go across the North Pole, you could basically shift power one way or another, forgetting about borders and being able to manage and change the cost of power. Now, nobody was ever going to happen because of the nature of the politics and so forth. He also wrote a book called Designers and Politicians, certainly worth reading. But the nature of that idea was a demonstration of his thinking, his open platform thinking as to how he experienced the world and how he was open to that thing, to experiences. He wrote things like, life is the spirit incarnate in time, recognizing that there is no life without time and time is the force or the conduit for life. Math for the sake of math is misleading. It needs to be applied. It needs to be used. It's not a conceptual. It is an application. It is put, putting math into practice makes it meaningful. Dare to be naive. We've used this throughout our practice our whole, my whole career. The idea about asking really dumb questions and not being afraid to ask them um, and being less than, appearing less than sophisticated in that regard. Uh, but Mr. Fuller is also the, one of the people that's credited with less is more, even though Mies wants to take the, took it over. But it, our architects are always like that. They took over the word design. You're not. <laughs> they never had it before us. But there were also a lot of other people that came to this conference that were part of that. Pauline Trigere, fashion designer, old school. Pauline would wanted to know what the fabric did. So when it draped across someone, she designed, not with drawings, but on the model, with scissors and pins, so that she wanted to see what the fabric did. Traditionally, fabric designers, or excuse me, fashion designers, designed in a way where they drew and then constructed. Hers was about the body and the material and the nature of those materials and how they affected the body. Architect Louis Kahn, um, he also is famous for saying, even a brick wants to be somebody. 
He thought about the materials and the way the materials are used and how they interact with people changes the nature of those experiences with those materials. There's also George Nelson. George Nelson is an industrial designer. And George Nelson had wrote a book during the late 50s called How to See. And he basically instructed, at the time it was done for the military, how to look at things. You look at a dollar bill. Did you know that the number, that the number one is in language and in numerals is on the dollar bill 12 times, at least 12 times? He talked about looking at a motorcycle engine and recognizing that those little fan parts there, they're used to escape heat. So when you really examine something, when you spend time looking at it, you not only appreciate what it looks like in context of everything else, but you recognize what it does, how it performs in the context of its overall function, which is movement. Ivan Shemayoff was another one. Ivan Shemayoff is the, the gentle giant. Um, he has a great history, but he is essential to creating posters and identities with the fewest number of parts so that he finds a way of drawing, creating, facilitating things into a way that makes it connects with people. He looks for the bare essence of whatever it is he's saying visually and turning it into a language that is understandable and accessible by a great many people. There's also people that, in a sense, you wouldn't imagine at the conference like this. You may not know of uh, this name, S.I. Hayakawa. He is a Sumerian, uh, let me make sure I get it right, um, semanticist. He talks about the fact, you know, people say all the time, well, that's just semantics, meaning the words don't mean anything. He meant the words mean everything. Not only what you say, but how you say it. The nature of it and the context of it, like poetry. The words in a particular order, in a particular sentence, not only mean what they mean, but they mean it in relationship to the words before them and after them. So when you really want to say something, you need to think about each in an or in order, the way you're constructing a train, because it takes you from one place to another. Language has power in and of itself just by how you present it. So after all of these experiences, I've probably gone over my time anyway, one of the things that has what impressed me the most about my 13 years is that in changing my life, it did that by creating an idea of permission giving you permission to do dumb things, to think about things in new ways, to try things and recognize that failure is part of the process. And that failure is not a negative. It is a milestone. It is a plot point when you move from one place to another. In that process, I learned three things that had been a significant part of my story. One, design by objectives. Do things in a conscious manner. Make choices significant choices so that you, in a sense, are consciously taking yourself from one place to another. The advantage of this design by objectives is you can bring other people with you, people who are not part of the creative process, people who, in a sense, have content, information, valued contributions, but they don't know how to articulate it or visualize them. But you collectively bring them together when you create the common denominator as the objectives you're trying to achieve. The other is design as a verb. While the first definition in the dictionary says that design is to plan, Maybe it's a noun, but it doesn't become alive until you put it into action. To translate the practice into a process, and that process produces a product. And the last is content and context. There is no content without context. No matter how much information you gather, unless you can prepare, package, and present it in a way that is meaningful to the audience, to the user, to the end, to, to the end of whatever's going to happen with it it, in a sense, falls away. It, it disappears as though it's one of those flowers that blows away when it gets too far along. My feeling and my experience with design as a process and a product has been sort of like the beginning and end of my personality. Um, it's Geminian, a little confusing on occasion, but it always has a sense that you want to find the right way, right side up on occasion. So that experience with the design conference in Aspen is significant in that we have to open ourselves up, give ourselves permission to recognize that we have things to gain and to earn from a great many people who have nothing to do with what we do. And the more you open yourself up to those experiences, the more opportunity you have to do whatever you do a little better, a little smarter, and hopefully a little more fun.
Uh, guys, I'm not a designer, just so we're all clear. I think I learned more about design uh, in the last few minutes than I have ever known. I also learned that, I, I guess, designers like to eat lunch. There was a lot of lunch going on in that story. <laughs> Maybe I could be a designer. I don't know. Do you guys have room for one more? Anyway, coming up next to the stage, we have a visual and interaction designer at Morningstar. This is Pega Amadi. I wanted to tell a story about a girl tonight. I wanted to tell a story about a girl from a land far, far away from here. Land of beautiful poetry, handwoven rugs, handwoven rugs, and, and lush gardens. The enclosed gardens that are so beautiful that uh, the word paradise originated from the name of these gardens. Lands of four seasons and inventors of wine. Um, a special place that silence has more to say than words. I wanted to, I wanted to tell, uh, tell a story about a girl and her perfect childhood. A foolproof bubble, uh, that could block the most horrifying sounds in the background. Sounds like explosions and, um, mother's screams. The poor little girl had no idea that the loud sound, um, coming from outside is actually a neighbor's house being bombarded. And um, the reason everybody, everyone was running down the stairs in the middle of the night wasn't actually part of a game, but escape from death. The, and the reason her dad, her father, did all those fabulous drawings in the, in, after the midnight um, wasn't just to do something fun to fight to hide it from her, but actually he simply couldn't fall asleep uh, thinking about um, her. His home could um, be bombarded any minute. Those days of fear, those days of um, pure ignorance and uh, innocent happiness are far gone. I wanted to um, tell a story about a girl. Um, and her, um, I wanted to tell a story about a girl, and, a girl and her despair in the wake of her next birthday. Before she turns 23, must choose her husband to marry. She's a very spirited young woman with a mind of her own and yearns for freedom. She loves animals and even has a pet tiger. However, unlike other girls, she does not show much interest in finding a true love or a husband. I wanted to tell a story about a girl and her parents and how the duality of their personalities intertwine and shape the person who she is today. Her mother is a lawyer and her father uh, is a retired financial um, specialist. Her mother is a very strong, independent woman and her father is a generous uh, listener and um, incredibly patient person. Her father showed her how to swim, ride a bicycle, draw, and make origamis, and all sorts of creative uh, activities that um, is still that are still liberating to this day for her. And um, she learned from her mother how to be decision making and um, a discipline and fearless woman in uh, just by watching her. her being um, executing these qualities in times of hardship. Um, I wanted to tell a story about a girl and her, and her um, I wanted to tell a story about a girl who was unhappy uh, with having no choice in life and being ruled by, uh, ruled by over society. So she runs away from the, uh, she runs away to find a uh, freedom and simple, simple life. Uh, on her path, she came across a prince, a young prince, uh, whom she thought is another uh, arrogant suitor. And uh, but at, later, she uh, she accepted her his proposal after falling in love with him on a, a magic flying carpet ride. Um, <laughs> I wanted to tell a story about a girl tonight. I just couldn't decide which one. Thank you. Thank you so much, Thank you so much for sharing that.
Yes, we have two more speakers in this half. Then we're going to take a short break. You can get some drinks. You can go use the bathroom. You know, I'm not the boss of you. You guys do what you want. <laughs> Your break time. Coming up next, we have a designer at Kite Math. This is Kelsey Postalweight. Um, so if your definition of practice implies any sort of planning or preparation, you can consider me fucking horrible at it. <laughs> the only thing that I seem to practice is diving headfirst, sink or swim, into just about any situation. I dive into dog ownership, into cultures, into career choices, both real and imaginary, uh, into committing and solving crimes, into <laughs> cities, into relationships, and into speaking in public for the first time ever. <laughs> so... <laughs> In college, I took an anthropology class, and it was fascinating. It was the first time I realized that people could go out into these different cultures and explore them and learn from them and grow as human beings and individuals. Naturally, the next semester, I'm signed up to study abroad in Rome, and the night before, I'm packing and I'm just trying to shove like 30 pounds of shit maybe into a suitcase and figure out what I might need for the next six months of my life overseas. The next day at around noon, TSA be damned, I am sprinting through the terminal with like twice that much weight in my luggage. I have no idea what gate I'm running to. I have not signed up for classes yet. I do not speak a word of Italian, and I am a complete mess. Um, you know that phrase, when in Rome? <laughs> Trust me when I say that phrase is completely true. I copied everything, and I feel like if I wouldn't have come into it with this deep understanding of the fact that I knew literally nothing, I probably wouldn't have been as open to just mimicking the world around me and really assimilating to the culture and finding my place in the community as well as I did. And somewhere along the way, I became the best damn copycat in pistachio. <laughs> and that's how I cleaned up that mess. Uh, then about a year ago, I auditioned for the reality show version of Kick-Ass. Um, you know, that movie where the little girl super wimpy and she's trying to fight crime. It was a lot like that, um, but certainly not as intentional. Uh, I was sitting on my stoop. And I was reading a blog. I think it was, I, honestly, I think it was brand new. I think I was, because I remember thinking about how shitty that uh, MapQuest logo was, <laughs> honestly. And all of a sudden I hear, give me your phone. And I look up and I see this adorable little like plastic gun and I'm trying to discern like which one of my friends is playing this ridiculous prank on me. And like, I see you, Dave. Uh, so, I play along um, like any cool cat would. I'm like, but I can't afford a new phone or something like that. Uh, but then there was like a certain wiggle and weight to the gun, and I realized what was actually happening. Give me your phone. I looked to my left, and miraculously, somehow, the front door to my apartment is still propped open by about a half an inch. So I say, no, I'm going inside. My mom hates that mess. In that second, I literally elbowed open the door and rolled back into my apartment building, kicking it shut and somehow locking it behind me. Uh, they don't teach that shit in yoga class. <laughs> I, uh, I called the cops immediately, and they were able to track them down, along with three phones, two wallets, and whatever else was in the attempted hall from earlier that evening. 
I spoke to the detectives until five in the morning. And thankfully, a lineup and the police and the detectives and eventually a shit ton of community service hours uh, cleaned up the rest of that mess, um, which was good because I honestly couldn't afford a new phone. Uh, <laughs> but back to Rome. <laughs> I generally equate professional sports with the kind of thing that happened in ancient Italy. Uh, that is, if you gave the gladiators like publicists and agents and uh, <laughs> deals, <laughs> um, that's really, well, okay, also maybe a better logo than the Capuline Wolf, which is that like weird like female wolf with the nipples, <laughs> so weird. Um, so those things. Um, but regardless of my complete and utter lack of knowledge regarding all things sports, I somehow got an internship uh, with the Kansas City Chiefs. And what better way in sink or swim fashion than to start my new life in Kansas City by finding housing on Craigslist. Um, roommate wanted Three floors, six bedrooms, eight art students, perfect, uh, no hot water, sign me up. <laughs> um, about six days after I started my internship, the man who had hired me quit, leaving me, uh, what are you, like the franchise designer is what you call it, I think, in the biz. Um, as a rookie, it was now my job to art direct all of the photo shoots that make Jamal Charles look like he doesn't want to completely annihilate that free safety. Uh, no, he wants to smile and take pictures and attend your child's bar mitzvah. Um, so full disclosure, I may or may not have told a couple of the players to look into the camera like they're eyeing down a curveball or hit a homer. <laughs> like, you're really not, not that great at sports, guys. Like, really had no idea what I was doing. Um, but after a couple of hours, uh, we had everything we needed for programs and posters and billboards the works. And I honestly think I may have gotten a couple more smiles per shot uh, than they had in previous seasons. <laughs> so you're welcome, Roger, for uh, helping to clean up some of the NFL's PR mess. Um, and what I'm trying to say through all of this is that I see so much value in planning and in preparation and in making sure that you are fully prepared for when that moment comes. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that we should be avoiding the messes in design either. I personally kind of like the mess a lot. <laughs> and I seem to find myself time and time again uh, when it's sink or swim. So to that end, Jen, Chris, Scott, Dave, Daniel, sweepers extraordinaire, mom, the suction to my vacuum, Tanner, thanks for letting me spill my guts, and that's enough puns for this evening. Happy practicing, everyone. Kelsey, you're a badass. If someone tried to rob me, I'd be like, yeah, here you go. Cool. I'm just going to curl up here now. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is kind of atypical, but we're going to end this episode with a piece of recorded music from the wonderfully talented Sara Jahedi's band, Sara and the Bats. Uh, Sara performed this song live to close out this half of the show at the Design Museum, and our mic didn't quite pick it up clearly enough, so Sara graciously agreed to let us use her actual track. Uh, for more from Sara, check out soundcloud.com slash Sara and the Bats, and enjoy! We'll see you guys next week!
Your Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy your stories, you might also like Open Ended. Hosts share Vincent and James T. Green take a weekly dive into topics like tech news and code, code switching, and gender, all wrapped in the comfort of listening to two best friends disagree. For more on Open Ended, go to openended.fm. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.